Hello and welcome to episode 63 of the Page One Podcast. I'm Marco. I'm Tarek. And thanks for joining us at the Page One Podcast, where we like to speak to writers of all kinds about their writing process, their career, and just try and get as many hints and tips as possible. Um, We've spoken to authors, screenwriters, video game writers, comics writers, comedians, journalists, any other kind of writer? I think think you probably covered most of them. Yeah, but there's a a big back catalogue there of uh, some really great uh, writers, so please do check some of those past episodes out as well if this is your first visit. There's lots of excellent guests, and I'm sure whoever you are, you'll find a handful that really grab you. Yeah, definitely. And uh, we've got another great guest this week. We do indeed. Robert Dinsdale is on this week, who is a... Interesting guy. He was an agent for a while, and mm-hmm. then he made the switch to author. So he's kind of seen both sides of the coin, which is quite an interesting. Uh, Poacher to... turned gamekeeper, perhaps. Now, is that a sports metaphor or something? No, not really. <laughs> <laughs> um, he uh, his first book was uh, the Harrowing, and then Little Exiles and Gingerbread. But perhaps his breakthrough novel was The Toymakers. Mm-hmm. It's kind of big, kind of magical yeah, story. Earned him comparisons with Neil Gaiman and Aaron mm-hmm. Morgenstern, sort of the Night Circus, because it, it, it's the it's the first of his books that does have that sort of magical. It's very, it's very grounded and real, but it has yeah. that magical element to it as well, yeah. um, which and it's really you know really beautifully written prose in his books, but it has that sort of otherworldly type thing going on as well yeah and his latest book paris by starlight uh, came out just at the end of 2020 when in fact we recorded this episode it, it was it was in november that we recorded this just before lockdown two was it i can't remember what it's number of lockdown exactly, exactly. Goes, yeah. <laughs> but um uh, we, we do actually chat a bit about that because i think robert's book was coming out on the day of the start of the lockdown unfortunately yeah. Uh, which bad, bad luck. Yeah, we've spoken to a few people. Obviously, that's affected no, a lot of people so this year in terms of book launches. Um, and the, the only other thing to say about the episode is that it, it was recorded over Zoom and it, there was a bit of connection issues. We've tidied it up as much as we can, but we'll get straight into it after a quick advert for a writer's notebook. And then we'll be back at the end of the podcast with a bit more chat. But for now, on with the podcast. The Blank Page. To some, it's terrifying, an obstacle to overcome. But we prefer to think of it as an opportunity, a blank canvas to be filled with all of the adventures and characters in our head. So how to overcome that fear? Well, we all know the best advice for a writer is, write. Seriously, get words on the page and more will follow. But what about later, when you start trying to pull those threads of what you've written together? What about the character you wrote about way back at the start? Who was she again? What was she carrying? And where did she leave the MacGuffin that she now really needs in the third act? Think about all those top thrillers you like to read. Or that amazing drama you just watched. What did they all have in common? Structure and planning. As aspiring writers ourselves, we've tried many different methods to try and organise all the thoughts about the stories we want to tell. We've been there searching for a piece of scrap paper to note something down, or making a quick note on our phone in between meetings. Or sometimes we'll make a note in whatever notebook we're carrying or a document on our laptop so we don't forget that great idea. 
let's be honest, it can all be a bit messy and it's easy to lose track of everything. And that's when we realise it's not just a story that needs structure and planning, but the way we gather all of our thoughts about it as well. And so we made page one. Page one is more than just another notebook. It's a place to put down all your ideas for your latest project, divided into easy-to-use sections that will help you plan your story so that when that blank page comes calling, you're ready to answer. And then afterwards, once it's written, we realised you need to plan how to let people read it, so we included a section relating to submissions. Each one is designed for one project, whether you want to write a book, screenplay, a comic or any other kind of story. We truly believe that when you use it, it will help you get to the main event, writing your story. So we hope this helps. We can't wait to read what you come up with. And remember, every story starts with page one. Did you always want to be a writer? Um, yeah, it's quite cliched, isn't it? But yeah, and I think everybody he's ever written the book probably says the same thing. Yeah, yeah, I did. <laughs> I was, um, uh, I guess, you know, five, six, seven years old. I remember writing little books for my parents and um, just as my daughter, who's seven, does now. So, yeah, it's always been something in the head or in the back of the head, if mm-hmm. you like. And um I went. I remember so when I was about twelve, I had operations on my knee, and I, which, which for a boy like me was quite a good thing because it meant I got to sit out PE at school. <laughs> I got to PE and I didn't have to do the cross country and things. So I just got to go to the library, and I, I used to write stuff then. And I remember sending stuff to trying to send stuff to publishers when I was eleven, twelve, thirteen, and nice. always getting really nice. I've, got, I've still got one of the letters actually telling me, you know, keep trying, but you know, you're 11 or you're 12. <laughs> um, but that was always the thing I wanted to do. And I'm not sure why really. Now, obviously I love books, but, uh, but so do most kids. Um, I just wanted to do it, I guess. Mm-hmm. Just one of those things. And so when did that sort of childhood ambition start to become more serious in your life? You know, when did you, did you continue just trying to write stories through your teenage years or did you, you know, when was the moment you said, right, I'm going to really try and do this properly? Yeah, it was a fixture, really. And it's always been a fixture of life, to, something to do. Um, I don't know. I, I remember my, my father telling me recently that um, there was one summer where I just sat down and wrote a book. And, you know, probably not a very good book. The kind of book writing when you're 13 or 14 or something. But, yeah, it was always a fixture. That's just what I did as a hobby, I guess. And when I was at school, I wrote the school plays and when um, I'd spend my summers writing stories and it's up in my parents' attic somewhere, these files of stuff that you'd write. And it'd always be on these, you know, terrible old world pro- word processes that if you hit the wrong key when you're trying to save it, you'd lose everything you'd written. <laughs> <laughs> angry with it. Or, um, um, and I remember having a old electric typewriter, which is still here somewhere. Actually, I took it out of the other week for my daughter when we were in lockdown to play with and the ink still worked in it, which was Amazing. quite nostalgic. Yeah, it's just one of those things I always did, just a, a hobby that I always intended or hoped that I could make into a living um, and, and kind of have a little bit. Mm-hmm. And uh, am, am I right in saying that, um, I'm not sure if it was before you became published but or alongside it, but did you work as a literary agent as well? So what? So, so the, the very short story is I was... Um, you know, left university and I've been sending stuff away to people all through university and never getting anywhere with it. And I guess I thought, well, I'm just not very good then, am I? So it's, which is fine. Um, 
I'll try and work in books instead. And after I left university, I saved up, you know, I worked on this off license for a long time in Yorkshire, where I'm from, and um, saved up some money and, and went to London with it to try and get some work inside the book industry. And I ended up jobbing around. I worked as a royalties assistant at various literary agencies. And I ended up doing um, editorial work for a bunch of agents, which is like reading manuscripts and giving opinions on mm-hmm. it and all that kind of thing that literary agents find useful. And um, somewhere along the way, I'm not quite sure when, um, somewhere along the way, I did the maternity cover position at a literary agency when somebody I knew, um, their, their assistant went off to get pregnant and I went and worked there for a bit. Um, and after that, yeah, worked sort of in, sort of, I guess, in association with a literary agency, s- selling a few books here and there. And it was something that was really interesting and intriguing to me um, and a really fun industry to be a part of because you get to think about books, you get to be around books all the time. Um, but... Um, I mean, it fizzled out, uh, you know, not, not that long ago, actually. Um, so I spent a few years trying to do that. And, and at the time, the books I was publishing weren't um, really doing anything. And I thought perhaps that being in books, was in books, but not being a writer was where I was going to end up, mm-hmm. um, which would have been great. And actually, you, you know, one of the um, wonderful things about the industry is full of interesting people and people get to talk about books and make yeah. books for a living. But then life stuff happened and sort of um, I became a parent, very quickly a single parent and, um, you know, writing kind of took over. And and did working in that on that side of the fence, if you like, did that help your own writing, you know, looking you know at manuscripts I, and things? I think it made it more difficult in some ways. Right. It did. It made you, and I think one of the reasons I one of the reasons I figured out I wasn't getting anywhere with it in my early 20s was A, because I was in my early 20s and ergo I wasn't very good but <laughs> um, but um, you know maybe that was directing my um, ambition in the wrong way somehow mm-hmm. because publishing is this world in which um, you know not everything goes Yeah, and not everything goes because it's market driven and and publishers think inside silos and things like that and most writers don't really think how publishers think so there is this big disjunct in how publishing things and how writers think and that was a difficult thing but a useful thing to get the head around um but it also tears you in pieces a bit because you see you see good books like brilliant books not selling copies all the time mm. and you sort of see books that you don't think are very good although obviously people must love them but they're doing brilliantly all the time so it can I don't know. It was an interesting few years of life to be sitting on both sides of the both sides of the fence and having sort of one foot inside the door. And you know, I never worked for a very big agency. I was always always sort of out there on my own, sort of with like, peeping in. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, it was interesting. It was an interesting period to be able to see from both sides. Um, and I think it definitely makes you more. I, I wonder if lots of publishers and agents would. Um, it'd be a good thing if they were writing too, and lots of them do. Mm-hmm. But I think there's something about the sensitivity of it, which will, um, I think is helpful. Yeah. When you're, when you're working in that industry and you're obviously getting, could be heard for that you get, you know, a, a fair number of submissions every week. It's, it starts to pile up, et cetera. What, what sort of stuff would you look for when you're going through the submissions that, that you, that you looked at? What was there like a standout thing that would turn you off straight away or something that would say, Oh, I want to read more from this person. Do you know what? I, I I wasn't really the sort of agent who got hundreds of submissions every week. I had friends who <laughs> did that. 
and I'd get, you know, 10 a week and think, um, you know, and I'd, and I'd read them all and I'd, and I'd feedback. But most, most agents would get, you know, 150 a week or something and not mm. be able to keep it. So you quickly knew that agents were looking for um, things that grabbed them. And, and one, of the, one of the lessons from it was that it's kind of unquantifiable. I mean, yeah. there are things you can quantify. You know, there are agencies specialise in different genres. There are agencies specialise in, um, like, crime thriller. There are agencies specialise in fantasy and um, agencies specialise in non-fiction. So there's definitely things you can whittle out. But I think everybody's just looking for that elusive thing that they hadn't been expecting to love, yeah. but they did. Mm-hmm. And and I think when you go to that, and I haven't been to many of them, but, you know, when you go to the events where agents are speaking to writers and probably speaking to writers, it's kind of the most frustrating thing for somebody to hear, isn't it? That we don't know what we're looking for, but we'll know when we see it. Yeah. And everybody's coming saying, well, well, what are you looking for? And I just think it's like everything in life, right? It's like what stuff you like or what people you fall in love with or what who people become your friends or, you know, who you click with. Yeah. Uh, and and w- uh, with your first book that, that, that was published, um, which I think is the harrowing. Is that is that correct? Yeah. yeah. Um, that, what was the journey to publishing for that then? How how did that come about? So I'd been submitting stuff for ages, and I'd written this novel pre the harrowing, which is a novel set in Dust Bowl America, and it's a bit more like the stuff I'm writing now, which had a kind of magical inflection mm-hmm. to it. And they kind of got loads, of, an agent took it on, and they and they were submitted it around, and you got lots of nice rejections. But then an editor of Favour and Favour de- declined it, but really liked um, the writing. So I went and had a tea with him, um, and he asked me what else I was working on. And they kind of directed me, they said, we'd love to look at something else if it was, you know, didn't have the magical inflection that the first book had. And I did have this idea of a sort of Cain and Abel story set in the First World War, which became the harrowing. And, and so that, I guess that relation with the editor, he'd liked the unpublished manuscript, developed into what would become the publishing of the harrowing you know two or three years later and did you stay with the same agent then that you had no actually i've been all over the shop and all over the houses in terms of agents and publishers no that agent left agenting and went off to start start a different kind of literary consultancy company so i was i was agentless and then favor and favor kind of didn't like the, the next novel that i was writing and that's some big changes to it so um i ended up sort of having to depart from them and i got a new agent who's now my first agent who sold that novel little exiles to um a different publisher um and it, you know it is quite a fragmented journey and and, and lots of lots of the stories you hear about these people who had the big debut novel and i certainly wasn't one of those people um the debut novel didn't work um then i moved publisher i think that, that editor then moved job in the middle of that which is something that happens in publishing all the mm-hmm. time and fine. I mean, but then it was inherited by somebody else who then moved jobs and the people who took over the imprint didn't like the next book. Um, and I, again, and it was just sort of, you know, I definitely felt like, um, you know, clinging on by the... By my well, I, I mean, yeah, that's one of the things, isn't it? You know, people, if you're, if you're starting out in trying to be published if you get that first agent you can suddenly think oh this is great i've suddenly made it but actually it's only only the very first step on on what can be quite a long and an arduous journey even at that point even when you're published as you say with your first book sometimes it doesn't work and then it 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 can be 
you can be back to the sort of feeling that you get when you get rejections sending those query letters out, I imagine. Well, it's very much like that. I tell you what it's like. It's, um, it's um, you, I guess, most writers and, and you know, you know, I spent all the, I mean, lots of nine years were childhood years spending doing it. So maybe they, maybe they don't count as much, but loads of people spend their many, many years trying to get published. And mm. the goal is I want to see my book on the shelf. Yeah. But of course, and of course, that is a massive achievement, and it's a brilliant. And when you see this happen, that's that's a really nice feeling. But I think ninety nine percent of us get pulverized thereafter because, of course, publishing is this world where, you know, a fraction of the books sell copies, and a lot of the books don't sell copies. And it's a bit like film and TV in that, in that the publishers have to spread that and see what works mm-hmm. and see what doesn't work. Um, but it does mean that. For a lot of us, me included, um, the joy of the first publication is quickly followed by a you know a one two of nobody really reading it, and I found that really difficult. I was in the sort of my mid twenties, and I, and you know you come off that euphoria of, of seeing your book on the shelf and fulfilling what for me had been sort of a dream from you know very knee high when I was knee high, um, and I felt slightly pulverized after that because. You know, some nice reviews. There were some not nice reviews, and mm-hmm. and and it, and it wasn't, and it didn't feel like the start of something. Like, I, like I guess I was programmed to think it was. And in retrospect, in hindsight, I think that, that I'm sitting with an awful lot of people in that camp. It's just they're the people that you don't necessarily read about and hear about. I mean, now you've you you are a full time author now, um, I believe, and and so you've obviously you know from like a rocky start, and it sounds like you've went through the trials of people leaving and changing agencies etc and but you've you've managed to to forge a successful you know job out, out of all that and and when were you able to make that jump then to to becoming a full-time author that you could you were making making enough of a living from just the writing alone well do you know what i'm not I, you know I, yeah that's what i'm doing at the moment but i'm not sure that it feels like what i'm doing because um everything's so in flux all the time and you're mm-hmm. never doing that um, so the to- so the book that really changed things for me was the toy makers and yeah. that came off the back of, you know, I'd spent, um, well, the, my last novel, Gingerbread, had been a few years before that. And I, in the meantime, I'd spent a long time writing a book that didn't really go anywhere. Um, and I knew it wasn't quite working and we didn't end up showing it to anybody. But I mean, then I wrote The Toy Makers and that kind of changed things. But I think really until you, I mean, the old adage is if, you, if you've published five or six best-selling novels, then maybe you can, you know, stop thinking yeah. about other and, and I'm not nearly there. So um, although it's all right at the moment, anything can happen. And I'm not really counting any, any chickens in that regard. Paris is coming out and hopefully people like it, but um, you, you just don't know. I don't know if they'll like it. I don't know what will happen. So um, I've kind of, I think the lesson I've learned is to not think too far ahead and uh, you know just enjoy the work that you're doing for what it is. Yeah. Obviously, you have to have this um, inner sort of belief in what you're doing and your and your own strength of the strength of your own writing really when you're getting all these not you know like from the start when you're getting the rejections from the agents and then when your book comes out and it doesn't do so well you know what keeps you writing it is just that love of writing and the belief that this is something that you can do and, and want to get it out there i think so it's difficult isn't it because i mean it's the paradox of having I mean, I think I think it's a cliched paradox as well. You know, the paradox of, of having the insane belief that what you're doing is worth it, but then then the 
crippling self-doubt that it's absolutely not worth it. And I think that's the situation that most people writing books or making things, creative things of any kind would probably attest to, or lots of them would attest to, that, um, yeah, I, you know, even stuff I'm writing at the moment, you go through it and you think, there are days when you think, yeah, this is good. And there are days, probably more days than not, where you think, yeah, is it? <laughs> Um, and I think it's just the long process of learning to block out those voices. I didn't really have those voices until I was published. I guess the rejections kept coming back in, but but I was, I guess, young and stupid enough to think, well, it's, um, I'll get there. It doesn't matter because at some point I'll take that step on that ladder and then mm. it'll be all yeah. But But what you realise is that the ladder forever goes up. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> There's no end to the and ladder. I, I just figure as long as you're still on the ladder, that's that's what matters. Yeah. And you're and looking over your books that that, that you've written, um, your first three, the harrowing, three miles, uh, and little exiles, are quite kind of grounded books. The first two are set during the First World War, but Toymakers and your new book, which we'll chat about later on, Paris by Starlight, they've got a more fantastical kind of magical nature to them. And I kind of wondered why the the change change in approach there. I mean, it was always what I intended wanted to do. I mean, the I mean, I, I guess where my heart is is in books that are. Um, you know, grounded in the real world, but have that magical element. They can, yeah. I think it's just, I mean, it's just a process of trying to go back to those times when, I guess, the, the imagination was first fired. When, when mm. you're, kind of, for me, it was when I was a kid, and you're reading books that um, books can do anything when you're a kid, and they, they tend to not be able to do everything when you're an adult. And there's something lost in the magic of that for me. So I always wanted to be in the space that I'm in now. But when I met Faber and Faber, they encouraged me to do something more grounded. And I had these ideas and I followed them. Um, but it came to, I remember coming to the book after Little Exiles. Um, and Little Exiles is the book where I first start thinking that, you know, I, Little Exiles book, I first look back on the thing. I still look back on the thing. I did all right with that. Um, the, the two before that feel like, um, I guess, growing exercises somehow. But it came to the book after Little Exiles, which was under contract, Gingerbread. And my editor had left and Little Exiles hadn't really set the world alight in terms of its sales. And I thought Gingerbread was going to be the last novel. I knew it was under contract, so I knew there'd be a novel published. But I didn't really know there'd be a novel published after that because I hadn't been selling books. And publishing is not very kind to people who haven't sold books. I mean, you're better off having not published a novel, actually, because they've got no numbers to stack. (laughs) And... um, and so I just wanted to do something that I, that I really wanted to do. And Gingerbread was a novel which was rooted in something that I'd written probably when I was 16, 17. Um, and in writing Gingerbread, it, it, it retained some of the speculative elements of that novel I'd written a long time ago, but um, became more grounded in, in history too. So it became like this bridge novel between the grounded stuff that I started with and the more, I guess, magical, flourishing stuff that I'm doing now. But I guess it's been a process of getting back to where I, I wanted to be and I guess learning the lesson which I should have learned a long time ago is that, you know, you should follow your heart with what you really want to do because you live with the books forever, whether mm-hmm. they sell, whether they don't. Mm-hmm. And they are extensions of you in some way. Um, I don't think that's, um, I, I don't think it's possible for them not to be because you spend years of your life writing them and it, everything you thinking is bleeding into them. So, um, yeah, it's been a process of getting back to that um, somehow. And and the latest book is uh, Paris by Starlight, um, which is out as we record this. Oh, I think it's on Thursday, is it? The, mm-hmm. 
on the day of lockdown, which we can maybe touch on as well um, <laughs> later on. But, but um, uh, do you want to tell us a bit about Paris by Starlight, what it's about? Okay, let me see if I can get this um, succinct. Um, <laughs> the toy makers I could always get succinct because I'd just say he was set in a magical toy shop and that was Let me see if I can do this. So it is about a girl who's looking for the father who abandoned her when she was young and she moves back to Paris looking for him. And in moving back to Paris, she meets, um, she comes into uh, contact with a group of refugee people who have fled from their war-torn country, which is now kind of an obsolete country on the Asian steppe. And they've all flocked into Europe um, and this family of the people have um, arrived in Paris and are living there trying to make a new life. Um, and their history is that, well, in the history of their people, they used to live nocturnally, so they lived by starlight. And to honour their old traditions, the family who grew up in Paris decided they're going to do this again. And as they start doing it, all of the magic and wonder of their older times from their, their old country starts re-manifesting in Paris around them. So they begin living, living nocturnally by Paris, in Paris, and the nocturnal world starts flourishing with all this sort of wondrous stuff that used to happen in their old country starts happening in the sort of liminal places in Paris. Um, but while this is a magic and a wonder to lots of people, um, it begins to be seen in a more sinister light by certain sort of I guess, nationalistic people in Paris. And it sets, um, you know, a tension in the city rising. And it's about how Isabel, who's the girl who meets the family, and her relationship with one of the refugee people progresses through the fall and rise of the kingdom of the night in Paris. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, that's that's a good summary, I think. Yeah, um, awesome. And obviously, just as you describe it, there, there's, there's obviously while it's got these magical elements, it's got a, it's got a lot of themes that are very topical at the moment um, in the book with things like refugees and, and stuff like that. I mean, is that something that you like to do in your in your writing? You know touch on themes that that are topical and try and say something about them as well i guess it is the first time and it's quite deliberate that i've tried to write something contemporary and it's not quite contemporary because i hate, hated mobile phones and the internet was going to ruin <laughs> stuff so i cheated and flung it backwards in time and you know just you know a little one moment backwards in history um i writing the toy makers was you know brilliant for me um it's a novel set in the first world war about a, a runaway girl who rocks up in the toy shop and the um, and the brothers who work there and the magical confections that they create. And that novel was very much about, I mean, it's about the magical confection of this toy shop, but it's also about First World War and the death of innocence and a generation of people who grow up in wonder and then go through something and then come out of it broken in some way. Um, and I, it's the mixing of fantasy and reality is... Um, something that really interests me and I think there's so much you can do with you know the fantastic to shed light on mirror hold a mirror up to what's going on in the real world um, and I thought I mean I had it in my head that if you wanted to write a book that really lasts you should be writing about the present moment and if you think about all the books I was thinking about all the books that have lasted like if you look at books I mean somebody like Dickens you know feels like these big pieces of Victoriana to us now mm-hmm. But actually, they're just soap operas set in the world in which he was living in. So I became convinced that, uh, or interested in the, the idea of writing a novel that used the kind of fantastic elements that I'd been 
beginning in gingerbread and toy makers, but doing it in the contemporary world and writing something about the contemporary world rather than setting, setting it in a moment in history as I've done before. So I guess that was the challenge. There's always got to be a new challenge, I guess, to to interest you or to engage you in what you're writing. So that was definitely the thing that um, I wanted to do with Paris. And it's been gaining, and both Toymakers and Paris by Starlight have gained comparisons with, uh, well, Toymakers in particular with Aaron Morgenstern's The Night Circus and this new one I've seen has been compared to Neil Gaiman as well. I mean, how does it feel to be compared to, to authors like that? Oh, that's that's really. I mean, it's great, isn't it? I don't. Very few people would sit here and say, "Nah." <laughs> yeah, no. <laughs> Sorry, They're but does it bring its own sort of pressure to it? I suppose. I, I do. You know what? Paris is the first time where I'm feeling really nervous because, um, kind of before, I'd always assumed that very few people would read it. So even if it was a terrible novel. <laughs> it wouldn't really matter because, you know, the hundreds or 200 people who picked it up would, wouldn't, um, would, uh, you know, I wouldn't come across them. But Paris is the first time because quite a few people read the toy mix off more so than had in the past. Um, yeah, I'm feeling nervous about Paris now. Um, and those comparisons do, I mean, they do wonderful things, don't they? Because people look at whatever the publisher is saying on mm. good or on Amazon and places or the bookseller websites and the blurbs on the front of the book and, you know, and it brings a certain sort of expectation to, to yeah. the book. Um, and that's an expectation that necessarily even have to be one of, like, I guess, strength or quality, does it? It just has to be one of, like, do the people who like these books, will they like this? And, yeah, I don't know. Hopefully. <laughs> Hopefully, yeah. <laughs> I, I wanted to ask about about the research that, that you do for the books, because obviously the new one is set, set in France. Did you go to Paris? Did you... Someone that you knew already, or do or do you just kind of go for the version of Paris that's in your head rather than the Paris that's actually in? You know, I didn't get to Paris while I was writing. I, mean, I was meant to get to Paris while I was writing it, but you know, I've got a seven-year-old, she's six, five, six at the time, and you know, dragging her to Paris with me is um, <laughs> an absolute nightmare. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. About <laughs> Maybe one day, one day she'll love it. I'm sure she will. Um, but uh, I'm not sure that she really wanted to trek around. You know the grotty suburban ends of Paris that <laughs> yeah. writing in the books so I'll go and see the Camps in Calais no I, I mean I know Paris reasonably well from having visited across across my life so it's always been a city I really loved so um, I wanted to write something in there for a while and this book seemed to fit Paris really nicely um, uh, but of course the things that Paris is about I mean they are the they are the um, topics of the day aren't they mm. so yeah. I guess we've read so much about um you know the refugee crisis especially syria um there's a syrian family live locally to me who, who have, came to britain um on one of the similar refugee trail to the one i write about in the book and i know them a little so it is um yeah i guess it's steeped in things that the world is going through now um but as for the you know I can't say I'd be counted to Paris to write for six months. <laughs> <laughs> and did, when you're when you're getting ready to write something like this, are, are you someone that, that has the idea and lets it sit in their head and work it out in your head? Or do you, are you a strict planner or are you a pants or do you just go for it once you've got an idea? What What's your process? I'm not really a planner, actually. And actually, I have tried to plan before, but for me, and not for everybody, I think everyone's got their own way into this stuff 
it just sucks the joy out of it for me because what would happen the times I have tried to plan a novel you sit down and you spend that time planning it but then when it comes down to writing it's almost like you've you've done the fun part you you've Mm -hmm. spent imaginative energy on making the stuff up in the plan and when it goes down to writing it it almost feels like a bit of a chore somehow um and and that so i don't really plan i do i can't i can say that i do i do have a shape in my head but i think it's something that organically develops and i normally know the ending i normally know where i'm going to i kind of will know the beginning and i'll know the ending but what on earth the middle is, I don't really know how one connects to the other. Um, but you've got a goal in mind and you're heading there. You know, you're driving yeah. around sat-nav. Um, and that keeps the whole thing still enjoyable. It probably means that, um, and I think this is probably the case with all of my books, they're a bit fat and shaggy dog. And, and that's something I am working and trying to, you know, rein in on. But, um, but yeah, I mean, to, to keep the joy alive, I don't really know where I'm, I'm, I don't really know. I mean, I guess I know where I'm going, but I don't know how I'm going there. Yeah, yeah. No, I think, I, 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 don't, I know what you mean. And we've chatted to a few folk in the past, you've said something similar in the fact that you plan it too much, you take the joy of it away and it becomes a bit of a slog. And, and I think I read somewhere that you, you like to write alone and at night, that's your kind of sweet spot for inspiration or for, or for the worst of flowing. Is that, I mean, is it, there is definitely something about being in the right time frame because people are you know I'm, i definitely find myself writing better at night than i do in the morning i don't know why but is that is it something that you try to create the ideal writing environment before you sit down and write um i actually you know, i guess i'm not the person who has very many rituals i know some people obviously have very specific rituals they're like the cricketers at the crease aren't they where they're yeah. marking walk and they're tapping their back they have to get it right beforehand um but i would say I don't really like anyone near me. <laughs> so you're I can, not a cafe writer, don't. yeah. No, I'm not a cafe writer. And actually, I couldn't think of anything worse. And I know loads of people love it and, it. and it must feel like it breaks the solitude and the loneliness of it for them. And I think that's, you know, and I can see that. But, you know, I almost don't even want anyone in the house. You know, even even the show <laughs> door, you know, frustrates me. So, um so I guess nighttime has always been good because it tends to be a place you can cover yourself. But really, I just think it's a thing of habit from even back from when I was a kid because I grew up in a really small sort of terrace house in Yorkshire. And at one point, there were seven of us in it because I've got brothers and sisters and my parents and my grandfather lived with us. And, you know, you just want you just want a little corner that's yours okay. to be able to come there. Um, and I don't know how much longer night work will go because... I don't, this sounds so stupid, but I'm nearly forty, and I'm starting to get tired at night more than I used. <laughs> so, um, so I'm definitely feeling that. But there is something about the nighttime that's just more—I don't know—generates more imagination, I suppose. Mm-hmm. And, and when, given that you don't plan the, the, these novels in, in, in detail, but, you know, are you someone that? uses the first draft almost to feel out where the story's going and then hone it once it's done or, or do you revise as you go? Um, there's always an element of revision as you go, but um, I, like, I am a terrible editor. I am, I'm just awful at it. I just, 
I get to the end of the book and it feels complete to me. And it's never complete. And and, and actually what I've learned across the way is that all I always have to do is go back and redo probably the first third of it. I mean, not from scratch, but certainly there's an awful lot of work that needs to happen in the first third. And I think I normally get the second two thirds in decent condition straight away. But, you know, and I think it comes back to not liking the planning of it and sapping the joy out of it. Mm -hmm. When I get to the end of it and I know that I've got to go back into it, like I'm working on something at the moment and I've got about two thirds of the way into it. And then I realized that, you know, it wasn't coming together as it should. It wasn't as elegant as it should. And I need to go back to the start and do stuff to it. I'm furious with myself. (laughs) (laughs) No, I know what you mean. It's just, and and some people love it, don't they? They, They'll talk about... um, you know, writing is rewriting and that's the stuff they love. They just want to get it down on the page and then they want to use it as a play and work with it. Um, and I think probably I do have to do that too. I mean, I know I do in lots of respects, but God, I hate it. <laughs> no, I, I, I'm with you on that. I mean, I'm, I'm doing a redraft of something just now and it is, it's difficult once you've actually got it out there, you know, this, the story you had in your head, whether it's in the best form or not is, is there now. So yeah, you might have to remold it, but, because it's already out of your head, it's difficult to then say, right, I've got to start this and got to pay attention and, and rework it. Or oh, it can be a it can be a, a, a tough slog. Um, I quite enjoy rewriting because I think I do like seeing the improvements as as I go along. But the the thing I do hate is when is when you kind of you get an idea for something, you know, two thirds in, and you you start adding in, and then you have to go back and thread it in, and it's and you're trying to remember where. And, and it's always you always miss bits, or they or they reference something that's been cut out, and trying to trying to get all the little bits out and smoothing everything out. That's I find that very difficult and quite annoying. Just think how awful it must have been before, um, like computers as well. Yeah, oh, that's yeah. Right. can you imagine that? Absolute nightmare. And typewriters, or handwritten, <laughs> or even worse. Yeah, awful. And, and the, with these sort of more sort of magical, fantastical stories what is it that i mean this is a question that you know writers get asked a lot and they don't like them but you know where 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 do these the inspiration for these sort of fantastical stories come from is it because that's the sort of story that you did used to enjoy reading as a kid i think it is and i think this is going to sound awfully awfully self-important and i hate myself for it but i am i kind of think that all imagination goes back to the stuff you loved when you were small mm-hmm. <laughs> it was quite sad in a way because you know you wonder where the fresh ideas are coming from um but i think there's certain things which are in you they your imagination got opened up when you were small and um you don't want to shut it down um so i think it all goes back to that sense of wonder that you'd get as a kid when every story was new and you've probably read hundreds and thousands of books in your life and it's not it's very rare that you come across something that gives you that same sense of wonder that you had when you were a kid and you read, I don't know, for me, a book like Watership Down and mm. suddenly you just empires of rabbits everywhere. I don't know. There's, there's certain things that um, just open up the imagination. And in writing these sorts of books, I guess you're just trying to recapture that sense of wonder that you had where things were possible. Mm. Does that at all or is that no no I, I know exactly i mean we we do we've all got these the sort of seminal books and they don't need to be what people might term classics but you know that we all had that those books that we suddenly fell in love with when you started reading that you loved as a kid and i think that does carry through 
throughout your whole life that the influence of of those stories is, I think that must be true for yeah. everyone. And it, I could I could definitely see a couple of your books, Toy Bakers, Paris by Starlight, um, doing well on the big screen. You know, they have that kind of fantasy edge to them that I think I could I could see doing quite well. And, and has that ever been any any thought to anything like that, or or putting anything on the big screen or writing something for the big screen? I mean, it's always there's always something going on where you think that maybe that will happen, but you know you don't really have that much influence on on uh, what will land on somebody's desk. And there is like there is an agent in uh, the US who handles the toy makers and he's and he keeps trying to take it away onto you know. <laughs> and I think we, we've all, we've always talked about television as being a miniseries rather than on the big mm-hmm. screen. But um, yeah, that's all. I mean, it, it would yeah, it would be amazing, um, but. Um, those things, even more so than rolling dice work, are still the gods. So I do try not to think about it too much. It would yeah. be transformative, wouldn't it, to everybody when something is made. But, um, you know, toss the coin. And that's what I said about staying on the ladder before. I think as long as you keep staying on the, cling on the ladder and keep working and keep writing and keep getting the stuff out there, then the possibilities are there, aren't they? So, mm-hmm. I mean, that's uh, one yeah. for the future. Maybe. Yeah. Was you was it? What's the saying? You you miss one hundred percent the shots that you don't take. So if, as long as you as you exactly. say, just got to stay out there and keep making a name for yourself. And yeah, it, would you be interested in writing in another medium, or or is is prose where you want to be writing? Would you ever want to try writing a screenplay or anything like that? I mean, it's always been something that I'd quite like to try, but um, but I haven't written anything like that since um, you know since my school days for like performance. Mm. So I think it's a very different skill set. I think it's more ruled than it is mm-hmm. um, uh, than writing prose is. And the thing that I always loved about writing books was that you, when you're done, it's finished. And it doesn't matter actually if it's sitting on the shelves in Waterstones or it's up or at your local bookshop. It's um, it still exists, right? It's um, you finished it, and it's a piece of work that you finished. Whereas with something like a, a, a movie. If when you finish the writing of it, it's not really finished because the, after that point they're meant to be these big collaborative exercises. So, so yeah, I mean, so if the opportunity came along, I would give it a go. But I like the fact that all you need to do to write a book is have a you know a pot of tea and your computer. Yeah, I mean, I can't I can't remember who it was that we had on, but they said that you know to get a book published, you need you know, two or three people to say yes. You need an, an agent and uh, an editor in a publishing house to say yes, really. Um, but for a film, you need, you know, tens of people to say yes before before anything can become a reality. So it's, it's a, you know, it's a very different industry, even though they both involve writing. It's a very different uh, thing to try and get into, I suspect. I think so. I, and, um, and... You know, there's plenty of people. I remember meeting somebody who was writing film scripts and he was making a living off it. And eventually he started writing books. But, but And the reason he turned to writing books was because he just wanted to see something made. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And they write scripts and never, so they get paid for them and they sit in the vaults and they never bubble to the top and get made. And for him, there was something quite dispiriting about it because although he had done what he wanted and he was making his living out of words, he wasn't really seeing seeing the end product of it, but for a book, you know, the end product's a little bit nearing nearer in reach, I guess. Mm-hmm. And like, or well, the way I think about it, if if 
if I've written it, then it exists. And I get the satisfaction of having, you know, accomplished something, even if nobody else is going to read it. Whereas with the film, it, it feels that little bit more distant somehow. Yeah, yeah, I can see that. As we mentioned earlier, your new book is out on Thursday, which is the day one of the new of lockdown returns down <laughs> south. And, and 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 what what's I mean, obviously the impact of that is is very annoying. Bookshops are shut, etc. Um, what what's what's it like trying to launch a book during these times? Or is it? Is it, I presume even the run up to it's been not the usual at all compared to previous book launches. It hasn't. And what I think the, the big difference was that. Um, you know, with something like the Toy Makers, before, you know, nine months before publication, you had advanced proof copies that were being sent out and, you know, yeah. people were reading it that far in advance. But when lockdown happened this year, it very quickly became clear that those kind of run-up activities that you would normally get in a publication, just not viable and weren't going to happen for the book. So um, I think everybody is just doing the best they can in a world that doesn't really, um, yeah, there's asking a lot of questions of, of you. Yeah. And... Um, I guess, you know, lockdown happening this week, I guess you, there were worse things happening in the world. I mean, it's frustrating from the book's point of view, but in the grand scheme of things, um, you know, you can't grumble too much because, you know, bad stuff is going on, right? Yeah. And uh, it's a real shame for the bookstores. I think it's, um, it's, I mean, it's nearly Christmas, right? It's a massive hit for them. Yeah. I think everybody's doing it all they can to support them to get through this and, and to say that the bookshops are, the doors are closed, but the bookshops themselves aren't mm-hmm. closed. You can still buy a book from your local bookshop. So, um, yeah, you can't go in and browse. And maybe that means people won't pick up Paris as much, but, um, you know, here's the world. You've got to get on with it. Yeah. I, I, I saw as well that there's just been the new launch of the, yeah, and I can't remember the bookshop. Is it bookshop.org.uk? Is right. that um, which is all the sort of indie, indie bookshops sort of joined together, so you can buy through them, but you're actually giving money to the to the local indies as well. So um, that that at least is a good thing. Yeah, perhaps this will spur some some kind of change or in the in the world of you know getting local bookstores out there a bit more or or so because I, I did read somewhere that the the sales in local bookshops had been really high the past yeah. couple of weeks and there were almost like a kind of christmas buzz or rush and i don't know if that's because people hadn't been able to get to them for a while or if there was an influx of people wanting to make sure that they spent money in bookshops can keep them going but it but hopefully that doesn't stop and it does lead to a, a, a change in, in a lot of bookstores kind of fortunes going forward obviously paris by starlight's coming out but what is what is next? Have you got, have you got something in the pipeline? Um, I'm not under contract for anything, so I am working on some stuff. But of course, this year has been um, not the most conducive to to gain something. I really wanted to have be further along in what I'm doing than I am. But you know, the school's kicked out, and we all had to mm-hmm. roll our sleeves up and you know deal with what was in front of us. So um, yeah, I'm probably. Uh, a point where I, I probably don't want to talk about the new book, if I'm honest, because I tell you what happens whenever I talk about something I'm in the middle of writing until I'm quite far ahead of it, it just collapses on me. And I've had it before where, you know, you tell somebody the idea and then I mean, five hours later, I'm like, mm. <laughs> okay. no, no, that's vocalized it. No, that's fine. Like, no, keep it, keep it secret. Yeah, that's absolutely. Be yeah, does that make sense? Blamed for ruining your book, that's <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it would have 
bestseller. Hey. <laughs> What was the last book that you read? The last book that I read was Chris Cleve's um, Everyone Brave is Forgiven. And it's brilliant. It's brilliant. I don't often do the social media thing, but I really felt like I had to go out and tell the world that it is, it's good. It's good. It's one of the most, I don't remember really loving a book as much head and heart as, as that book wow. in, in a long time. So I did one I recommend for sure. Excellent. Awesome. Nice. And what about the last film that you watched? Um, no, probably Barbie's Mermaid. <laughs> <laughs> uh, last, yeah, exactly. Last TV show. <laughs> the last TV show that I watched, and uh, no, I rewatched Deadwood about about oh, a month ago. Really half ago. That's nice. a very boring yeah. answer, though, isn't it? That's an old show. No, it's um, a great show though. Have you watched the end of the, the TV movie that they did for it recently? I did, yeah, and I really liked it. That was I great, really yeah, it. I loved it. Yeah, yeah, a really good, you know, 10 years too late, but a really good kind of wrapping up of the whole show. I thought it was really well done. It's really amazing how they could come back 10 years later and recreate the tone of it. So, yeah, so, yeah it's great. And uh, the, very, the very, very last thing we do is an either or, so there's no right or wrong answer apart from one of them. And uh, the first one is Gaiman or Morgenstern? Gaiman. Gaiman. Fair enough. Um, TV or cinema? Um, do you know, I'm going to say TV. And I wouldn't have said that once by the time, but I, I just the last five years of TV, it's been, you know, it's like watching novels now, isn't it? Yeah. It is. yeah. 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 You start watching The Queen's, Queen's Gambit mm-hmm. um, on Netflix and it's, it's I haven't. Is it good? Fantastic. Yeah, we only watched two episodes, but it is. It's it, for a TV show about chess. It's it's much much more gripping than I would imagine it would be. But okay, yeah, I'll look at it. Uh, and what about fancy restaurant or a takeaway? Um, takeaway, takeaway. And is that the right? no? The, 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 <laughs> this is this is the question you have to get right in Tarek's in Tarek's eyes. Um, is it uh, do you, a real book or e-book? I mean, it's a real book every time, isn't it? Actually, oh. Robert, it's not, I'm afraid. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm with you, Robert. But yeah, Tarek. You know, I, I do use my I do use my e-reader a lot for work, though. I mean, when you're reading stuff back, um, I mean, that's coming to its own for that, for sure. But I'd rather have the book in my hands. Talking of Deadwood, I've not, I've not seen the, the movie yet. I've not, I've not oh, finished the story. Yeah. yeah, no, it's excellent. It's um, it's uh, one of the few examples I think now of of a show kind of coming back after ten plus years off the year and not being shite. Like it's, uh, you didn't it's like really the big. new X Files, Derek. <laughs> the, the new X Files was one of the most let, biggest letdowns for me in a while. It was pretty awful. I feel like. I just feel like it's totally missed. The- yeah, better know. to pretend it never happened. I yeah, think. that's the way. I, that's the way I'm looking at it, exactly. exactly. But Deadwood, the Deadwood movie is uh, is brilliant, and it picks up. I think it's, I think it does jump ahead, real like real time. How much time passed in real life type thing? And oh, there's definitely a time jump of some mm-hmm. kind. And yeah, it it just picks up the characters again, and it gives you that kind of resolution, that nice ending, which you never really got with the TV yeah. show. No, it's it is good when they can do that with some of these shows that suddenly died. Mm-hmm. Uh, I suppose it's that balance between 
you know, great listening to people that want it to come back and then ending up with a sort of rabid Snyder cut type fan base <laughs> that you appease by At the time of recording I am very excited to watch the Snyder cut of the Justice League <laughs> exactly. mainly because I'm convinced it's going to be an absolute car crash now. I just can't yeah no I do I do want to see it but yeah I'm, I'm I think it will be a car crash let's be honest anyway um thanks very much to Rob for coming on to the podcast I really enjoyed that chat and you know just hearing about his journey and what he was saying about you know he brought out the harrowing and, and little exiles and stuff but it was only really when he wrote the story the types of stories that he'd always wanted to write with that sort of magical element to it that you know he he found that success which is exactly what you want i suppose i suppose that is the lesson don't try and force yourself to write other types of stories write what interests yeah. you and then hopefully you'll engage other people yeah i think that's we've certainly seen that advice from other people don't don't write what you think is going to be the big thing to mm-hmm. try and artificially create something that will be a kind of commercial success because you'll you'll be late or you just won't have that authenticity that because mm-hmm. you don't you don't love it yourself and that will come yeah, across in your I writing think that's right i think you have to write about what you know write the book for you and as long as you like it there'll be someone else like you out there and, yeah. and, and and that's the that would be the best book because of it i think yeah, and uh, as we said at the start, Paris by Starlight is now out uh, in hardback. I think it comes out in paperback in June, um, but it's definitely worth picking up, especially as we say, if you if you're a fan of things like the Night Circus, um, it's that sort of great prose uh, with that magical element. So so do check it out. But we've got another great guest on next week as well. We've got a fantastic guest next week. We're chatting with Mister Peter Moffat who is uh, an acclaimed screenwriter, um, perhaps best known for Silk. In the UK, in, yeah. In, in the UK, uh, and his uh, new show, which is just about to launch at the time of recording in the UK, it's just finished in the US, Your Honour, mm-hmm. starring the wonderful Brian Cranston. Yeah, and um, also the he did Criminal Justice, which uh, was on the UK, a great show in itself, but then it was adapted into The Night Of, which was a huge hit in the US. So that's another great show. So uh, do tune in for that one. Um, before we go, uh, if you enjoyed the podcast, please do leave a review and rate us on Apple Podcasts or whatever your favourite podcast app is, because that helps us climb the charts and continue to get these great guests on. And of course, if you wish to get in touch, you can always drop us an email to podcast at rightgear.co.uk or a Twitter in the Twitter machine, which is at right underscore gear. Um, But other than that, have a great week and we'll see you next episode. See you later.